My name is Einat Wilf, and this is the We Should All Be Zionists podcast. Each week, I'll be reading one essay from my latest collection of essays book, We Should All Be Zionists, on issues facing the Jewish people and Israelis today, conflict, peace, religion, politics, past, present, and future. At the end, I'll be joined by columnist Blake Flayton for a discussion on the themes of the essay and how they apply to contemporary Israel and Jewish life. You can purchase your own copy of We Should All Be Zionists anywhere you get your books. Thanks for listening. Let's start. Israeli Arab M.K. Mansour Abbas is what Zionism intended. Essay for the State of Tel Aviv with research by Samuel Hyde, June 2022. In June 2021, for the first time ever, an Arab political party, Ra'am, joined a governing coalition in Israel. Equally extraordinary is the fact that Ra'am, led by Mansour Abbas, is a conservative Islamic party aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood. Supporters of the coalition, mainly from the center and left, praised what they saw as the fuller realization of a liberal Jewish state. Yesh Atid leader and newly minted foreign minister Yair Lapid spoke of a change to the history books. The Arab public, affirmed Labour Party leader Merav Michaeli, is part of Israeli society. And Naftali Bennett, the new prime minister and head of the right-wing Yamina party, called Abbas a unifier. In stark contrast, the right-wing opposition issued warnings of impending doom for the Jewish state. They assailed Abbas as a sly politician working to destroy the Jewish state from within. Benjamin Netanyahu, who had also courted Abbas when trying to cobble together a government, declared that the new coalition will be celebrated in Tehran, Ramallah, and in Gaza, just as they celebrate every terror attack. But, he warned, this will be a national historic terror attack on the state of Israel from within. According to Netanyahu and his supporters, Ram and Abbas had not accepted the Jewish state, but merely changed tactics. Having failed to defeat Israel through decades of wars, terrorism, violence, and global propaganda campaigns, Netanyahu asserted Ra'am was spearheading an effort on behalf of Arabs and Muslims to subvert the Jewish state. So, which is it? Real change as heralded by the left, or a sinister masquerade as characterized by the right? This question clearly is acutely important. Abbas represents a radical break with decades of Israeli-Arab refusal to join an Israeli government coalition. Yet his party is also loyal to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the parent movement of Hamas and other sworn enemies of Israel. Either way, the stakes could hardly be higher. The dilemma puts in sharp relief the two dichotomous possibilities— that Abbas's politics represent the realization of the vision of pre-state Zionist thinkers, or that the survival of the Jewish state is gravely threatened. 1. 
Mansour Abbas, Israel is a Jewish state. Unlike his predecessors, Mansour Abbas skillfully and genuinely dealt with challenges that made it otherwise impossible for Arab politicians to participate in governing coalitions. He openly acknowledged and accepted Israel as a Jewish state. Faced with a wave of terror attacks this past spring, some of which were carried out by Arab citizens of Israel, Abbas's repeated condemnations of these attacks contrasted starkly with signs carried by protesters at Likud rally reading, Abbas is a terrorist and supports terrorism against the Jewish state. In the immediate aftermath of a terror attack on civilians in Khadera, Abbas said it was a despicable display of ISIS terrorism that does not represent Arab society within Israel. Israeli Arabs, he said, seek a dignified life within the rule of law and a value system that sanctifies human life, Arab and Jewish coexistence, and the values of peace and tolerance. As tensions and violence between Israeli soldiers and Palestinians escalated on the highly sensitive location of the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa Mosque, Abbas very soberly addressed the situation saying that while the scenes at Al-Aqsa were very difficult, it doesn't matter how it started or how it ended. He added that he put out a call for calm and to give the mosque its respect to allow people to pray in peace. Again, he wasted no time in making his statement. Abbas was bold enough to raise the ante yet again when he stated clearly in December 2021 that Israel was born as a Jewish state, it was born that way, and that's how it will remain. The question is how we integrate Arab society into it. Such unqualified acceptance of Israel by an Arab political leader is unprecedented. Nor was this statement a one-off. Again and again, Abbas made it clear that his goal was to deliver tangible results for his voters. I want to maintain the hope for Arab society, he said, that will achieve our goals of full social equality and a society that is prosperous and a partner in decision-making. Indeed, during the one year of this government's existence, substantial funds were allocated to many issues of particular concern to Israel's Arab citizens, including infrastructure, education, and a significant reduction in violent crime. 2. Ze'ev Jabutinsky predicted Mansour Abbas and the Iron Wall. The Zionist leader who most directly considered the issue as to whether Jews and Arabs could be true partners in a liberal democracy was Ze'ev Jabotinsky in his 1923 essay, The Iron Wall. Jabotinsky was one of the foremost thinkers and leaders of early Zionism. He is perhaps best known for having founded the right-wing revisionist movement, which considered the exercise of Jewish power militarily and politically, to be imperative if a nation was to be built. Jabotinsky was revered both by his political opponents, such as Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, and by fiercely loyal followers, including his protege and future prime minister, Menachem Begin. Contrary to the caricature of early Zionist thought by its detractors, their vision for a Jewish state was never one of Jewish exclusivity. 
Whether it was Theodor Herzl, Jabotinsky, or the leaders of labor Zionism, they all understood that ever since the Arab and Islamic conquests of the land in the 7th century, a large cohort of the local population was Muslim or Christian by religion and Arab by language and culture. All visions of the Jewish state included the Arabs of the land as equal citizens and governors of the Jewish state. To the extent they differed, it was on how this vision would be realized. Herzl assumed, given that the Zionist intentions were to work and develop the land rather than exploit it, that the Arabs who lived in the sparsely populated and underdeveloped region would enthusiastically welcome the Jews. Jabotinsky, however, recognized that regardless of the good intentions of the Zionists, the local population would resist a growing Jewish presence. Countering Arab resistance necessitated Jewish power. He questioned whether peaceful aims could be achieved by peaceful means. Only if the Zionists had the, ca the capability to repel such resistance, erecting an iron wall, would the Arabs of the land finally come to accept them. While Herzl's naive assessment of no resistance was probably essential to mobilize the youthful optimism of the early Zionists, Jabotinsky articulated the practical imperatives for the movement to succeed. The establishment of a Jewish state, he maintained, necessitated the exercise of Jewish power. Israel's commitment to military, economic, and diplomatic power derived from the Iron Wall theory. Herzl envisioned the path to a Jewish state. Jabotinsky envisioned the path to Arab acceptance of that state. But even the more hard-headed Jabotinsky did not believe that the Zionists were destined to always live by the sword. Once the Arabs truly accepted the existence of the Jewish state, Jews and Arabs would govern together. On the other side of the Iron Wall, he believed in a highly liberal vision for the emergent state, where in every cabinet where the prime minister is a Jew, the vice premiership shall be offered to an Arab and vice versa. But Jabotinsky underestimated the magnitude, ferocity, and persistence of the Arabs' violent rejection of Zionism. When he first called for the mounting of an iron wall, there were about 10 million Jews in Europe and Asia and several hundred thousand Arabs in the land itself. Through immigration, he believed, the Jews would ultimately constitute the overwhelming majority in the fledgling state. For this reason, Jabotinsky's liberal vision of an alternating Jewish and Arab prime minister was not a vision of bi-nationalism based on numerical parity. It was still a vision of a Jewish state, just a liberal one. Jabotinsky could not have foreseen that the devastating convergence of the rise of Nazism, World War II, and Arab violence in mandatory Palestine would cause the British to choke off Jewish migration at the most desperate time. This meant that millions of Jews who could have otherwise immigrated to the embryonic Jewish state were left to perish in Europe. The possibility of a Jewish majority in the entire territory allocated to the future Jewish state by the League of Nations mandate, as envisioned by Jabotinsky and other Zionists, would be deferred, perhaps indefinitely. As a result, the Iron Wall would have to persist much longer than he had hoped. 
Nearly a century after Jabotinsky wrote The Iron Wall, does Mansour Abbas herald its success? Has Israel's continuous display of power finally caused its Arab population to accept its core identity as a Jewish state? There is a parallel development in Israel's relations with neighboring Arab states. The 2020 Abraham Accords certainly suggest that Jabotinsky's model worked. This was the view set out by the Israeli ambassador to the United States, Mike Herzog, speaking at a JINSA event, Jewish Institute for National Security of America, in January 2021, stating, It was only due to the uncompromising willpower behind the Iron Wall and Israel's refusal to bend the knee to its neighboring enemies that it later became an appealing partner for others in the Arab world against the mutual threat of Iran. But does the same rationale also guide Israel's Arab citizens and their political representatives? 3. The Curious Political Parallels of Israeli Arabs and the Ultra-Orthodox Upon Israel's founding, two groups which did not share its Zionist vision became part of the state of Israel, the Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jews and the Arabs living in mandatory Palestine. Arab and Haredi political parties, nevertheless, were quick to grasp the importance of ensuring that they had political representation in Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and became active participants in the democratic life of the Zionist Jewish state. But while both Haredim and Arabs opposed Zionism, the relationship between Israel's Jewish majority and its Arab minority was even more fraught. Following their defeat in the 1948 war against the establishment of Israel, Arabs were suddenly citizens of the new state they had just fought violently to destroy. Moreover, while Jews established themselves as a majority within Israel's sovereign territory, they remained a minuscule ethnic, national, religious, and linguistic minority in a region overwhelmingly dominated by Arab culture and Islam. Israeli Arabs shared a sense of identity, belonging, and cultural affiliation with the dominant Arab and Muslim nations of the region, which collectively remained sworn enemies of the Jewish state. And so, while Israel's Arab citizens had the right to vote and be elected to the Knesset from the outset, the continued ideological opposition of the Israeli Arab population to the existence and legitimacy of a Jewish state and their identification with Israel's mortal enemies meant that for more than seven decades, Arab political parties were not part of any governing coalition. Haredi parties, like Israeli Arabs, were ideologically opposed to Zionism, but because their opposition was never violent, they were able to chart a different course to political participation, joining governing coalitions, serving as deputy ministers with ministerial authority, but not serving officially as ministers in the government until a recent legal ruling compelled one of them to do so. They were thus able to leverage their political representation in the Knesset to secure policies and legislation beneficial to their voters without officially compromising their ideological opposition to Zionism. It would take Israel's Arab citizens more than seven decades to produce a political party that would follow the Haredi path of balancing politics and ideology. That party is Ra'am. Four a new type of Israeli Arab leader. 
In March 2021, Mansour Abbas broke with more than 70 years of Israeli-Arab political parties' rejection of open political cooperation with Zionism. Instead, he ran on a platform echoing the traditional Haredi formula of seeking participation in Israel's ruling coalition, if not its government. Abbas declared that he is a man of the Islamic movement, a proud Arab and Muslim, a citizen of the state of Israel, who heads the leading, biggest political movement in Arab society. What we have in common is greater than what divides us. Abbas's unprecedented political gamble paid off. He was able to clear the parliamentary threshold to command four seats in Israel's 120-member Knesset. While that may not sound like much, Abbas had already announced before the final election results were in that he was willing to join any government coalition, left or right. His party, he said, was not obligated to any bloc or any candidate. We are not in anyone's pocket, not on the right and not on the left. Abbas repeatedly made it clear that his goal, like that of the Haredi parties, was to deliver tangible achievements to his constituency. I want to maintain the hope for Arab society, he said, that will achieve our goals of full social equality and a society that is prosperous and a partner in decision-making. Abbas cemented his kingmaker position when he was seriously courted by Benjamin Netanyahu in the latter's fourth failed effort in two years to establish a governing coalition. This may have seemed counterintuitive. It was traditionally the position of the left to support inclusion for Arab representatives. But Netanyahu's signal that Likud also endorsed this approach was a game-changer, opening the way to an unprecedented right-center-left coalition that included Ra'am and not Netanyahu. Ironically, Abbas indicated that his party and constituents felt more comfortable with the conservative and religious coalition of Netanyahu than with the secular LGBTQ plus supporters of the left. What have I to do with the left, he asked pointedly. In foreign policy, we support the two-state solution, but in religious matters, I'm right-wing. Abbas further facilitated the process of Ram's entry into the coalition by abandoning the traditional militant anti-Zionist stance of Israel's Arab parties. Immediately after being elected to parliament, he quoted verses from the Quran in Hebrew, calling for the creation of an opportunity for a shared life in the holy and blessed land for the followers of the three religions and both peoples. Now is the time for change. He adopted the Haredi message of caring for his constituents, leaving aside the conflict with the Palestinians. All of which begs the question, does Mansour Abbas' personal conduct and the partial acceptance of Ram's message among Israel's Arab citizens confirm the success of Jabotinsky's Iron Wall? 5. Is the Iron Wall needed forever? Israel is closer today than it has ever been in its history to realizing the goal of full acceptance in a predominantly Arab and Islamic region. The Abraham Accords present a compelling alternative Arab-Muslim narrative, one that embraces the Jewish state as an integral part of the region rather than a foreign implant. Similarly, Mansour Abbas has given political voice to the Arab citizens of Israel who seek true integration into the Jewish state. 
Those are the Arab citizens who are volunteering in increasing numbers to serve in Israel's defense forces. Those are the Arab citizens who defend Israel in diplomatic forums and on social media against its detractors. These developments reflect very real achievements of Jabotinsky's Iron Wall. Many Arab Israelis do not seek the country's destruction. They support and participate in its success. But these achievements remain fragile. Abbas's political rival among Israel's Arab political leaders, Ayman Oda, leader of the Joint List, an alignment of Arab parties, recently told young Israeli Arabs not to join the occupation forces. Oda described Abbas' conduct as being insulting and humiliating and called on those who already serve in the security forces to throw the weapons in the Israelis' face and tell them that our place is not with you. Oda represents a substantial number of Israel's Arab citizens, if not its majority. This complex situation is best summed up by Abbas himself, who, criticizing his colleagues, called on them to not look at the half-empty cup, but at what we have achieved so far. The Iron Wall, as applied through a century of the Zionist movement, has led to great achievements, but the process continues. The IDF will be needed for the foreseeable future, and the Jewish state must continue to be vigilant regarding those who would celebrate its demise from without and within. Israel must insist that it be embraced as the Jewish state rather than allow for the negation of this core principle of its nationhood. While positive signs of acceptance need to be celebrated, it would be unwise to ignore or explain away indications to the contrary. Ultimately, Jabotinsky best combined the realism of necessary strength with a hopeful vision of peace based on Arab acceptance of the Jewish state. Those two goals, strength and peace, remain the twin pillars grounding the reality and vision of the Jewish state. So, Einat, you just finished a piece, a very interesting piece, that I think each and every audience member who's listening will think about after this episode has ended and will hopefully continue to go back to as news continues to break in Israel and we continue to hear about, you know, the clashes between Arabs and Jews uh, in Israel and, you know, between Israel and Arab states. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, because you wrote this piece before the last election, uh, you made a point to include that Israel is closer today than it has ever been in its history to realizing the goal of full acceptance in a predominantly Arab and Islamic region. The Abraham Accords present a compelling alternative Arab-Muslim narrative, one that embraces the Jewish state as an integral part of the region rather than a foreign implant. And I know you've answered this question before in various panels and interviews, uh, but in the age of Betsalo Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, do you feel as optimistic that we, or you know, as some on the right would say, about to reach peace with Saudi Arabia and expand our partnerships in the region? Or are these figures powerful enough, especially, you know, when they make headlines over and over again for outrageous things that they say, are these figures powerful enough to hold us back from that vision? So the answer is both, in the sense that by now we've seen enough 
to know that in our region and maybe the world at large, progress is never like a one direction thing where you just move and there's constant progress. Sometimes if you're lucky, it's two steps forward and only one back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two back. Um, and we've really lived through that. And I think the current government is very much related to the previous government. Uh, the sense perhaps among some people that the previous government was moving too fast, too quickly to this liberal vision of Arab acceptance and Arab Jewish solidarity. And now we're viewing the reaction to that and going back. And whether I look at issues of women's rights and other groups, and you see that uh, the notion that some, some of us held that progress is one directional, we see that in every field where you break through things, especially things that are entrenched, that are difficult, that go to the core of people's identity, then you're going to have reactions, and sometimes the reactions might set a thing back for a generation. Um, so on the one hand, I continue to have great hope and optimism for what I call Israel's Arab future, for our integration in the region, and it has to do with Jabotinsky and the Iron Wall and Israel's power. But I'm also aware that a lot of these achievements are fragile and there are powers and forces that could stall for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Let's hope not for a very long time. Yes. <laughs> Let's hope that, you know, you say that progress is nonlinear and I so agree. And I think most people would agree, but it, it always feels like when it takes a turn in a non-linear fashion, we don't have that hindsight and that rationality. We think we're all doomed immediately. Exactly. We think that, oh, the, the progress is all done for. It was pointless. It was useless. We're just now skidding backward. It, it takes a few steps away to realize, you know, this is only one part of yeah. history. Um, In general, we're not good at linear, like non-linear thinking. So right. if we see progress, we just assume it's going to continue a straight line. And if we see things going back, we just assume we're going back to the Middle Ages and we never have place for anything in the middle. That's right, unfortunately. Uh, speaking of history... The right today, I think it's fair to say, the right wing in Israel uh, lionizes and idolizes Jabotinsky and his revisionist Zionist movement, and they sort of pinpoint both of them as symbols of their fight and symbols of their ideology. Uh, of course, offshoots of revisionism include the Likud party, which is a direct descendant mm -hmm. of revisionist Zionism. You mentioned Menachem Begin in the piece. And then there are, you know, organizations and movements like Beit Yerushalayim, which has gotten in trouble multiple times for the racism and the intolerance of its fans. Um, and of course, there are elements of the settlement movement which trace their uh, origins back to the revisionist movement, which, as you mentioned, saw the uh, you know the borders of of a future Jewish state greatly expanded um, because there was a lot more Jews at the time, um, and because migration was seen as uh, was was seen as less of an obstacle, um, and so if, and so they in the West Bank sort of carry that with them as well. Um, but this piece that you wrote seems to offer a new perspective that perhaps Jabotinsky and the revisionist Zion 
Zionism um, had more liberal elements to them that are recognized today. Uh, what is your take on the origins of revisionism, and why might this misunderstanding and this disconnect exist today? Oh, absolutely. Very few people recognize the liberal vision of Jabotinsky. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, he was a complete secular person like the labor Zionist. So he was part of the broad secular Zionist movement. I think he would have a complete distaste for the takeover of religious Zionism of the right of the settlement movement. Um, I doubt he would uh, appreciate it. I mean, he really belonged to this secular can-do vision of Zionism, which was dominated by labor Zionism, but was definitely part of revisionist Zionism. Uh, his vision is completely liberal. Uh, as I say in the essay, on the other end of the iron wall, there is the idea that once the Arabs, and he mostly referred to the Arabs of the land, of the mandatory uh, land, uh, once the Arabs of the land accept that they are destined to be an Arab minority in a Jewish majority state, and they will no longer try to fight that vision and that reality, and essentially laid down their resistance, his vision on the other side of that was extremely liberal, one that seems almost impossible today. And clearly, none of the people who carry his name um, ever, ever speak about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Likud protests when Mansour Abbas was in the government, and then you immediately follow that with, but it was the revisionist Zionists who foresaw a, a shared government with exactly. an alternating PM role. It, it just seems crazy that these two movements could be at one point linked together. Um, so obviously we have a problem with the right, um, <laughs> with, with their uh, mischaracterization of Jabotinsky's vision that persists today, of course. But I wanted to go also over to the left because, or perhaps the far left, uh, farther than you know, the mainstream organizations that march on Kaplan mm -hmm. Street every Saturday night, um, who, you know, really put at the top of their to-do list, their political platform, unity between Jews and Arabs. And of course, the Jews of these organizations and of these political parties also advocate for things like LGBT rights and also advocate for inclusion of women and, and the advancement of women in society. Um, they're, they're, of course, more secular um, and they're, of course, more cosmopolitan in, in their worldview. Uh, the Arabs who they are trying to express solidarity with and who even advocate for, you know, expanding their movement to include the Arab citizens of Israel are much more socially conservative. And so it makes for strange bedfellows, uh, in a way. Um, do you think the left is, it's worth it for the left to pursue this strategy of courting uh, Israel's Arab population to support their parties and their platforms? There are some even who say that, you know, Avodah and Meretz should should collapse and reform themselves to be mixed Jewish and Arab parties fighting for shared democracy and equal rights. Do we see that as a winning strategy or is it sort of pie in the sky because these are completely different worlds? 
So some of it is certainly pie in the sky, and that's a general attitude. Uh, you see it in different uh, contexts where there's an assumption that if uh, they're Arabs, if they're a minority, then by definition, they support a lot of other minority causes. And there's no willingness to understand that often they might be very religiously conservative. Mansour Abbas uh, often said that the party that he most identifies with is Shas, the Jewish religious conservative party that is also built on the idea of uh, religious conservatism, uh, foreign policy, openness and moderation, uh, and working for their constituents. So I think... Uh, the left would definitely benefit from a kind of Jabotinsky attitude of, on the one hand, having this hopeful liberal vision, but also understand exactly what we're working with and who we're working with, and to understand, first of all, how deep anti-Zionism runs in the Israeli-Arab sector. We need to understand that Mansour Abbas's vision of Abandoning anti-Zionism as a core principle of Arab identity in Israel is still the radical and the minority point of view. Uh, so the idea of Jewish-Arab solidarity when the majority of Israel's Arab citizens remain committed to an anti-Zionist vision that is less possible and needs to be understood. Uh, and also just to understand that the fact that someone is a minority doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to support all minority causes. Right, right, of course. And I think we see that dynamic in in the West as well, in, in the United States. You know, I always wondered uh, in the 2020 election why there was such a swing uh, among people of color to the right to vote mm -hmm. for Trump, especially in inner cities and, and downtown metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. There was a shift to the right. And that came after the, you know, summer of racial justice mm -hmm. and the summer of, of, of progressivism that resulted in protests and riots in the streets and, you know, this massive reckoning, social justice reckoning among America's left. And then to have that happen you know, more people of color voting for the Republican Party than than the than in 2016. It was shocking to me to see those trends, but I think it just goes to show that the left, the majority left, has this has this incapability to see, you know, the innate conservatism in working class people and people who aren't as as privileged as they are um, who they claim to stand for and also the you know of course there was a bunch of policies at the time that went into it like covid lockdowns was putting mm -hmm. small businesses out of out of business and that needed to be taken into consideration how republicans might be favored on that front and yet it just didn't translate and you know maybe maybe looting stores is not going to resonate well with with the people who you are actually saying that you're standing up for. Um, so I think it's international. That's maybe that dynamic. Um, finally, another question that I had was an interesting thing about Jabotinsky is he said that not only was it naive and foolish for the Zionists, maybe like Theodore Herzl, to think 
that when the Jews come to Eretz Yisrael, to Palestine, and they begin working the land and growing the economy, that Arabs are going to be grateful and want to join in that project and eventually accept their nationality and their and their state. Not only did he said did he say was that naive, but also sort of condescending and disrespectful to the Arab population. He said, you know, they deserve, you know, our respect and they deserve to be treated like a, like a, you know, proud national religious movement that is not going to accept these foreigners, that is not going to accept these people who they differ with so strongly, mm-hmm. um, the Jews. And you see remnants of that debate, I think, in the present day over left-wing parties who say, you know, stop bombing or, or or carrying out operations in Gaza because they just want to be left alone and they just want to be left in peace and have a shot at self-determination. Or stop the occupation because they just want to have the means to, you know, have self-governance and to have borders and to move around freely. And I'm certainly not of, of right-wing opinion on, on a lot of issues in Israeli affairs, but this issue where the right kind of turns around and says, don't be so condescending and elitist to not take the Arab people at their word when they tell you what they want. And I know you've spoken about this before. When they tell you their goals, when they vote for political parties to govern either Gaza or, you know, after Mansoura, after uh, Mahmoud Abbas dies, maybe the West Bank, take them at their word what their political program is. Do you have any insight on all those observations? <laughs> Certainly, of course. Uh, that, uh, As you know about the book, The War of Return, one of the things that I say that I'm very proud is that in the book, Adi, my co-writer and myself, that what I'm most proud of in the book is that the book gives the Palestinians the respect of taking them at their word. And, you know, I invented a word called West Planing to describe exactly this phenomena, mostly of Westerners, condescendingly explaining away what Palestinians, what Arabs say quite clearly in their own words, consistently over time. Uh, so I think in that sense, definitely Jabotinsky uh, gave the Arabs of the land the respect of understanding that they are going to resist. Uh, and we see a bit of the idea when people think, okay, if we just did economic development, that in many ways the Herzlian vision that still continues. I worked with Shimon Peres, that was his vision. Let's create uh, uh, places to raise strawberries in Gaza after the disengagement, and that will support Gaza and peace, and and always about economic cooperation. And if we just, if the situation in Gaza was economically better. Wouldn't just that solve things? So there's a very Western notion, you could call it even a capitalist vision, that believes that if you have economic development, ideologies, loyalties, tribal sentiments somehow melt away with the power of the dollar, and they don't. Uh, it's actually often quite the opposite. 
People are willing to suffer deprivations. People are willing to live under the conditions they have in Gaza in order to sustain their vision that Gaza is not their home and Gaza is the base from which they will take back in their vision their land. So definitely there's no question that we needed Herzl's naivete in order to have the power of the vision. Without his kind of naivete, I don't think anything would have happened. But once he got the vision going and the Congress and the diplomatic connections and recognition, you needed someone like Jabotinsky and also the labor Zionists to have, in addition to the vision, they continued, as we said, to have this very grand vision for the Jewish state, but also an understanding of the realities and the obstacles on the path. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for those insights. Like I said, I think every listener is going to have a lot to think about, especially because every day we appear to be waking up to another headline of whether it be tension in the West Bank, whether it be tension in Israel itself, or in the Knesset between members. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's constant drama, and I think it gives way to sort of these existential questions that I think most Israelis are aware of. And that might actually lead us to vote one way or another, pondering these existential questions. But thank you for giving your opinion on them. Um, they're very valuable. Thank you.